welcome to the Unfair Podcast. Hello and welcome to the OnFIF podcast. My name is Lewis McClellan. I'm the Digital Monetary Institute editor here at OnFIF. And uh, I'm joined today by Andrew Slack from SICPA and Erin Taylor and Annette Brolus from Finthropology. They produced a really fascinating report on uh, CBDC implementation with a really, uh, a really unique and unusual approach to the research. Andrew, can you tell us a little bit more about, uh, about this study and you know, what, what, what you found out and why you decided to commission the study in Brazil? Thanks, Liz. Absolutely. So at SIGPA, we've been carrying out applied research into CBDC for, for many years, continuing our mission to enable trust through constant innovation. And we're doing this to help solve critical trust issues for governments and central banks, but importantly, also to build on our legacy of providing technology for secure, trusted and accessible public money, cash. But to successfully meet this promise, we depend on a deeper understanding of how these technologies are going to be used, uh, the motivations and, and the needs of the peoples who li- whose lives they will ultimately impact. So for us, it's really important to understand the need for CBDC from a public perspective as much as it is from a central bank perspective. In the end, the, the proof of uh, CBDC success will ultimately lie in the widespread adoption by the public. When beginning the research, we found that there's a lot of existing domain research, which is predominantly coming from a top-down perspective, from the view of commercial banks, central banks, and government. And we wanted to begin looking at how people's lived contexts were impacting their behaviors and decision-making about money use. I think there's recently been a number of consumer-facing surveys that focus on gathering public opinions and perceptions about CBDC, but these don't always dive into a deeper understanding of the drivers of people's choices around money use. So this is why we um, contacted financial behaviour experts Finthropology um, to conduct a field study among low-income groups in both rural and in urban Brazil. The focus of the research was in trying to understand whether consumers need or desire a new form of money, how people are responding to new methods of digital payment today, what's working and what isn't, and also what contexts and behaviours are driving their choices about the means of payment. I'll hand over to Erin, who can give a bit more of a deeper intro into why we chose Brazil. Thank you, Andrew. Um, So... Basically, there are many reasons why Brazil is an interesting case study. One is that Brazil is often used as a case to think more broadly about what people do in Latin America. It's a very appropriate country to sort of extrapolate from because it's a large middle-income country with a lot of dynamic uh, behaviours going on. So it's a good place to study generally. But beyond that, Brazil is interesting for us specifically because it has a very well-developed fintech market and has for a long time, as well as uh, your usual banking um, services available. Um, But also it has still quite a lot of cash use and a very active informal economy. So it's a kind of place you can go and see a lot of different stuff happening, and that gives you a broader sense of what the range of behaviours are. Fantastic. Yeah, it's, uh, it's yeah, as you say, a very dynamic economy, a lot of interesting progress there. Um, I want to return to something that Andrew mentioned uh, about the adoption. I think that's something, 
you know, really important, as Andrew said, uh, a real demonstration of the success and not something that has been universally delivered by the early uh, CBDC project. So it does seem there is kind of a deficit, as as Andrew mentioned, in, in the kind of research that informs what, what people really need. Erin um, or Annette, maybe you can talk a little bit more about that type of uh, the type of research that's needed to, to come up with those answers. You know, I guess we're thinking more of the sort of qualitative human behavior around payments and finance. Uh, uh, yeah, in, in the digital payment space, because there's been a lot of developments and people maybe aren't totally sure how people are going to react to all of them. Absolutely. I mean, people are always curious, why would you do qualitative research when data, big data especially, can tell you so much? But there are several reasons. And it's sometimes said that while quantitative research numbers are good for telling you precisely what people do, if you want to know why people do what they do, you need to go and ask them to find out. So you need that qualitative aspect. Uh, this is particularly the case when you're doing research on future use cases of a product that doesn't even exist yet. How do you know, uh, if there is no data, how people are going to use a future product? Uh, well, one way you can go about that is you can go and talk to them about their current practices and try to gauge what they might do in the future. Uh, some people try to do this using surveys, but it's notoriously difficult to ask people about what they will do in the future, because often they will say, if you ask them, oh, would you use a flying car uh, in the future? They will say, well, of course I'll use a flying car. But what they'll actually do is um, subject to investigation. So what we do is we go and talk to people in depth about their current financial practices um, to find out also not just what the standard things are that, that they do, but their pain points, their points of confusion, uh, those decision-making kind of nexus where they um, may take one path or another to then try and develop a bigger picture of what the possibilities of, are of how people might engage uh, with future products. Um, another great thing about qualitative research is it can be really good to challenge our assumptions precisely because you go and talk to people in so much depth. So one great example of this, I think, from our Brazil research is that uh, it's often assumed that people who are poor are not very financially literate. And this is discussed a lot in the whole financial inclusion conversation. It does make sense. And in some ways, it's absolutely true. People who have little money probably don't have a lot of experience with uh, more sophisticated financial uh, actions like investment, for example, and maybe they wouldn't score that well on a formal financial literacy test. But there are two issues with this. One is most of us don't actually score well on those tests and most of us don't have that knowledge about investment. So you cannot say, oh, people who are poor don't have that because it applies to all of us. Uh, and the other one is that when we went and looked at what people were doing on the ground and how they were managing their money on a daily basis in Brazil, we found people to be highly competent in making financial decisions and making their finances work for them. They were very price aware. They knew the costs of all the different bank transactions and they would take active steps to lower those costs and to try to avoid getting into trouble. And so what we recommend to any organization that's looking to develop some kind of financial product for a new market is take a look at what people are actually doing. Try not to make too many assumptions and, and ask them those questions that need to be asked to figure out what exactly the behaviors really are as opposed to what you think they might be. Yeah, it's a really interesting point about the, this qualitative research. I guess with, with, the, with the surveys, you can get what people might think is the answer, but until you actually 
uh, or on the ground talking to them, it's quite difficult to get some of those those nuances. Um, can you tell us about some of the other uh, takeaways from the study? Any any other uh, things that you discovered that surprised you? So I think that taking the cue from what Andrew and Aaron already mentioned, the context is very important. And we did expect uh, family and friends to be very important in low-income Brazil. And that is also what we found. We found that most people trusted their family members and their friends to help them in economic situations and also to help them understand new ways of making payments as opposed to their lack of trust in government in general and in financial institutions in general. They were very aware that they might be cheated, uh, be the offer of payment, extra payments that they didn't want to pay, or, of course, with the government to be taxed, which was an issue. Um, they were very aware of the risks uh, happening in financial, in the financial environment, so both the risk uh, with regard to cash, so like Aaron said, one-third of point-of-sale payments are still in cash or were still in cash. And we had one vendor in a market who told us that he had many customers who used cash. He'd run home and deposit his cash so as to be sure he didn't get robbed. But they're also very aware that there are risks in the digital space, so as getting your phone cloned, your card cloned, or be the um, be exposed to different scams. So, like Aaron said, when we look to the payment environment in general, we did expect to find that some people were sort of completely excluded, but that was not the case. Most of our interviewees had reasonable access to internet and electricity, and they all had smartphones. And ID did not seem to form any kind of barrier in this area. And like Aaron said, indeed, everybody had bank accounts which we did not expect. That was a bit of a surprise. Actually, 40% of our interviewees had three or more bank accounts. That appears to come from the fact that employers or government would create a bank account to pay out money to particular individuals, so they might be dormant. And it was also due to the fact that many were changing into new digital banks because they wanted to save money on transaction fees. Um, so what they would do would have a, a, a digital account and do their ordinary business in that one. And then they would uh, transfer money to their traditional bank if they wanted to get out cash from an ATM because they were withdrawal fees uh, in the digital banks. So that just shows a good example of how adept people actually were managing their money. Mm. Uh, I think we should mention also the fact that uh, the central bank actually introduced a new form of payment in Brazil recently. It's a payment platform. It's instant payments. It's mobile. It's easily available because it comes with your bank account and it's free for consumers. It's called Pix. Pix. Yes, we've heard about this. Yeah, it seems to have been a very successful uh, initiative so far. Yes, and a very, very fast uptake because everybody already had it. So they they would see it on television uh, commercials uh, or they would learn from their friends. And, and it became a whole way of working, saying, I will picture you this or I will picture you that. And, 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 and being treated just like cash. It's not completely like cash. And that refers perhaps to one of the complaints that we very often heard that was uh, um, often mentioned as an issue that, no one takes responsibility for 
uh, for PICS because if I make uh, a wrong payment, if I use a mobile number or a, or a tax number and it's a wrong number, I, I transfer money to the wrong person and there's nowhere to go to get my money back. So, so that's an interesting, it's actually a very interesting insight to find that, that though people are used to cash and, and having paid to the wrong person, there's something about digital that may, that may put you in different kinds of difficulties uh, where there's no no help to get. So that was one of the, the insights that we, we were able to give. Yeah, that's a really fascinating uh, insight, Annette. Thank you. Um, I want to come back to Andrew here. Can you talk about uh, some of the the inferences that, that you make from these insights and, you know, what, what they tell you about how you would, what, what an appropriate design for a CBDC looks like in this economy. Absolutely. I think from the, from the report, there were, you know, kind of around 10 key insights that we generated on the back of these findings. And um, I'll just walk through three for the moment that were, I guess, the most um, important for us in terms of uh, key takeaways from from the work. The first was this idea that a CBDC needs to ensure a functional value. We we began the study by trying to ask the question: Does the public really need a retail CBDC? And throughout the the research, we uncovered that there wasn't really a pressing need among the people we were interviewing. Many were able to meet their financial goals by using a combination of existing financial products that they had. But perhaps asking this question of what is the need for a retail CBDC, what problem is it trying to solve, is maybe taking the wrong approach a little bit. If we think about the new products and services that we use today, many of these were not introduced because of an existing need, but because they're trying to offer additional value among the other tools and products that we use. So this consideration that a CBDC needs to find its place within the wider financial landscape, it needs to add additional functionality to people's toolboxes so that it can help them to maybe exchange between different forms of money, make it cheaper, easier, faster, more secure, private or efficient to spend. So this was, this was one of the key takeaways for us and shifted are thinking a lot as a technology provider away from just thinking about what is the dominant discussion in a lot of CBDC forums, which is around things like, you know, how many transactions a second can we process um, technical qualities rather than thinking about how does this technology go and live within the ecosystem it has to operate in. Another key takeaway was about the topic of inclusivity. For a CBDC to be universal and inclusive legal tender, it needs to be accessible to everyone, regardless of their financial status, their technology access or their literacy level. But I think we need to be a lot more nuanced in our definition of what this means within certain contexts. I think, as Erin pointed out a moment ago, these perceived notions of what literacy levels are or what technology levels or access um, is available within a certain context is very different when we get on the ground and we begin to understand that individuals have learned behaviors or customs that allow them to navigate their financial worlds. Or we found many people that were sharing access to phones, accounts, to borrowing internet um, with friends and family. These behaviors 
create contexts which are very different to um, what we might find in statistical analysis of these issues around literacy or, or technology access. I think as well today that the goals of financial inclusion um, are often to absorb so-called unbanked populations into traditional banking systems. In, in Brazil, that represents some 34 million people, including nationals, migrants, business travelers, tourists. But for many in these demographics, induction into the commercial banking world might not be feasible or desired. So this notion of inclusivity, which a retail CBDC wants to support, might be better focused on in helping individuals to engage with the digital economy rather than trying to require them to build relationships with private entities. So I think that this takeaway about defining what inclusivity means in a very contextual setting um, was another key takeaway for us. Yeah, fantastic. A lot of really interesting points there and maybe some surprises about uh, or some changes to the way people think about uh, CBDC. Um, do you, what do you feel like are the most difficult insights for you to uh, incorporate in how you're designing uh, CBDC from, from the study? So I think several of the insights we uncovered a more nuanced or contextual understanding of these broad topics, like, like we just said, inclusion, privacy, payment choices. And we found very individual and subjective views about what these things mean to people. And sometimes these were even contradictory or changing viewpoints, depending on the context in which uh, you spoke to somebody. At the same time, we found the smallest frustrations or sh shared bad perceptions, um, which were talked about within social groups, could lower adoption or prevent continued use of a financial tool. So taking these things together, I think the greatest challenge in designing a CBDC is going to come in the negotiation that is going to have to happen between policymakers, issuers, technology providers and the public to ensure that CBDC is contextually relevant, that it's accepted, and that it's useful. A one-size-fits-all approach isn't going to work. And I think often CBDC is talked about as though it's some kind of silver bullet for a plethora of challenges that we're, we're facing. Um, but instead, perhaps it's better to consider it more as a, an umbrella term for a range of technologies or financial tools that we can provide to overcome different challenges or offer new functionalities. This is something we're trying to do at Sigpa when we're developing our technology to ensure that we provide as many levers as possible for issuers and policymakers to, to adjust the features and transparently convey these to users, not just at deployment, but throughout the lifespan of a CBDC. Because again, contexts aren't static. Uh, perceptions, behaviours and opinions change over time. Um, so I think to ensure that the investment needed to bring CBDC to reality, to ensure that that is worthwhile, we have to make sure that there's some flexibility in, in how it's implemented and, and how the features can evolve over time. Yeah, that's uh, a very important point. I think we've, we've come to that point. Uh, we've been coming to that point in a lot of our discussions recently. There is no one size fits all approach here. Can we dig into that a little bit more uh, and talk about, obviously this research is focused on Brazil, middle income country. Uh, can we talk about what uh, what differences you might uh, encounter 
when implementing CBDC for developed markets versus emerging markets? Yes, I think we probably shouldn't be as clear cut as that, splitting the markets. I think there's too much regional variation. You know, we're talking about different monetary landscapes, different financial tools that are available. As we spoke about earlier, PIX is a new tool that's become available specifically in Brazil. Um, there's different levels of technology development. And as we found on the ground, there's different behavioral and social drivers that can affect adoption. Um, and as well, I think Annette touched on earlier as well, the different levels of trust in public institutions. So for me, it, it can be a little bit dangerous to make these kind of broad and sweeping categorizations as, because we begin to lean back on assumptions of needs. You know, I think there's often in conversations around CBDC, this notion that things like offline are something that should be, you know, is specifically needed in perhaps more um, an emerging market context. Um, I live in a developed context. We had a citywide energy blackout yesterday. I often go to the shop and can't make card payments because the, the card network has gone down. I think there's increasing pressures around energy costs for businesses and home uh, homeowners that will impact access to, to digital technologies in all of society. And this comes back to a point I made earlier as well, that CBDC is not just for today. It should be a foundational technology to support digital societies for many decades. And as we said, societies and markets aren't static. They evolve and change. Um, so I think we need to be careful about not rushing into deploying a technology as a quick fix to a perceived issue now, but rather looking ahead to how can CBDC underpin future developments. I'd say the only um, real distinction that there might be between, um, as you said, developed and emerging markets um, would more likely be in the speed of implementation, where I think certain countries in emerging markets might have more to gain in the short term. Deploying a CBDC might help them to leapfrog some infrastructural shortcomings in their, their existing financial systems. And that is certainly, uh, it's certainly been emerging markets that have been pressing on uh, ahead with this so far. I'm sorry you said that we shouldn't rush to do it as a quick fix because an online, an offline digital payments, uh, system might come in very handy this winter if, uh, we're looking at more, uh, more blackouts and so forth. Um, so let's talk about how the, the research and this, this methodology can, can be applied in other contexts. Uh, you know, where do we go from here, I guess? Well, I think there are many ways to answer that question. Um, in terms of lessons from Brazil specifically, things like um, what we mentioned about people having very good functional financial literacy could be examined. Um, the fact that Brazilians were very willing to try new products and services is interesting, and we won't find that to be the same in every country, but it's worth investigating. Um, one thing we didn't mention yet is that in Brazil, we found that people made very individualised choices. So we need to be aware that when we go and study these same sort of particular circumstances in other countries, we need to think not only about what the national differences are, because every country will be different, as Andrew mentioned, but also that we'll have variation within a country, sometimes quite substantial uh, variation. And that could be depending upon the region people live in, their access to infrastructure, or also just the individual ways that people make choices. Um, so in terms of understanding other contexts, we really have to be aware, first and foremost, that other contexts are other contexts. And while we can extrapolate some behaviours, 
such as the fact that people tend to be concerned with things like safety, price and convenience. You'll find that pretty similar across a lot of contexts. There are many other things that we cannot assume will be the same. I don't know if I could add something here. One interesting insight is that one of the one of the rationales behind introducing a CBTC is often financial inclusion. It can also be monetary sovereignty, and it can also be uh, creating a more innovative financial system. And to the last point, I think that we, we see some practices among people in Brazil and probably in other countries as well that are certainly not catered to by the existing financial services. So uh, one of the issues that we see repeatedly is the fact that you need a human infrastructure to help out in the technical infrastructure, so that some, somehow you will need to use your neighbor's tax number or your mother's ID or your brother's credit card to get to, to a point where you want to go. And one wonders why, where, where has the financial services sector been up to now not catering to these needs? Yes, it does seem like uh, we're we're undergoing a period of really dynamic change at the moment, and it, there are yeah, it does uh, raise the question of why has this sort of change not been happening already? Why have these uh, needs not been being met already? But um, yes, I guess there's been been a lot of inertia to this, but it's uh, it's fascinating to see all these dynamic changes happening at once. Um, Excellent. Well, this has been a really fascinating discussion and it's a really fascinating, quite uh, quite different style of report that um, that you guys have produced. There's a link to it uh, below the video on the on the OnFIF website. If you're listening on Spotify or Podbean or any of the other platforms, uh, you can go to the SIPPA website and download a short summary report. And within that, there is a link to the, the full length report. So, yeah, I just want to say uh, thanks again to Aaron Taylor, Annette Brulus and Andrew Slack. It's been a really fascinating discussion. And, uh, yeah, anything you'd like to say to, to sign off? So we've we've begun this research activity and I think we've um, uncovered some new insights and we've added to existing knowledge. But really, I think this is hopefully the start of a wider discussion within the CBDC domain. and. I'd really encourage everybody in the domain to pursue qualitative research initiatives to further inform the debate and also to make sure that CBDC is meeting the night, the needs of, of society. Excellent. Well, thank you for that, Andrew. It's a great message to pass on to our listeners. It's yeah, a really exciting space. Thank you so much for breaking down the report with us. And to our listeners, thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's available on Spotify, Podbean, uh, and on demand on our website. You can follow us to find out more about what's going on, find our meetings and reports uh, on our website. We also have a LinkedIn and Twitter page you can follow as well. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to the OnFifth podcast.